It's a good song to sing before we come to this passage. Do you know, many times uh, in recent months as we've gone through the Gospel of John, and indeed many times, I'm sure, over the years and the decades from this pulpit, the claim has been made that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the most significant moment, the most significant event of all of human history. But additionally, and on top of that, the resurrection is the linchpin on which all of Christianity hinges. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, our faith has no power. And the Bible is very honest. It's a brutally honest book at times, but it's very honest. And Paul tells us this. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Another word for futile, pointless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is pointless. If he hasn't been raised, this, our gathering, every gathering of the last 2,000 years have been pointless. You see, if Jesus couldn't overcome death, if he couldn't truly deal with the consequences of sin, which is death, if he didn't have enough power over the consequences of sin, which is death, then what sort of power can he extend to us? If he couldn't do it for himself, you and I stand no chance. The scriptures are clear. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to look at some more evidence on top of uh, picking up from where Craig left us last week uh, and Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene. We're going to look at the evidence. And we've come, haven't we? And we still are in that, that Easter time of celebration, that triumphant season, that celebratory season where we've sung wonderful songs like Christ the Lord has risen today, hallelujah. Or see God's salvation plan, wrought in love, born in pain, paid in sacrifice, fulfilled in Christ the man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. Bold claims, aren't they? But the global church declares that there is truth to a resurrected Lord Jesus. But the joy that for us marks Christian gatherings in light of the resurrection, the joy that marks Easter, is very much absent at the beginning of our passage this morning, isn't it? Do you know, I was, the, the first question you ever ask on a Christianity Explored course, if you go onto their website, it's the top banner, what is the best news you've ever heard? It's the very first question. What's the best news you've ever heard? And I'm sure over the years, as courses have run all over the world, that there have been many, many, many different answers. But Mary Magdalene knew the best news that she had ever heard. And she is commissioned, she is told to go. And she says those wonderful words, I have seen the Lord. He's resurrected and I've seen him. So she goes. She goes and she proclaims it to Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. He's alive and I've seen him. And that's where we begin this morning. How do the disciples react to the news that Mary Magdalene took to them? Well, we open at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is the evening. The same day Jesus was resurrected, the evening time, the disciples are gathered in a room, possibly the upper room where they had been not long before. Ten of them. Maybe there were others not part of Jesus' closest circles, but obviously there is no Judas. He is 
now dead, and there is no Thomas for whatever reason. And here they sit in this room, the resurrected Christ, here they are, locked in a room. Why? Because of fear. Total fear. They had seen, of course, their leader, the Lord Jesus, executed. And it would have been pretty easy for them now to go and pick off those who follow him. They'll be aware, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the only reason they weren't arrested in Gethsemane with Jesus is because Jesus got them off the hook. So we start with this terrified group of people. It'd been a pretty brutal few days for them. They were scaled, first of all, and made incredibly uncomfortable in the upper room by the words of the Lord Jesus, I am going. I'm going to die. Started more strange before that. Jesus washes their feet. So it gets a bit strange for them. And then Jesus says that he's going to die. In the garden, they were utterly terrified. At the crucifixion, they were dismayed. And now here they are, fearful behind locked doors. And I don't think we can blame them for their fear. Because I'm pretty sure we would be in the same boat. But the point here is there is no joy. There is no understanding of what the Lord Jesus has done and what he's going to do. And it leads us back to this common theme that we found in John of the disciples unbelief. And I think one of the challenges we face at times when we look at Scripture as a narrative or when we preach through books quickly, you know, we could easily have gone through John in, in a couple of months, three months, but, but what we miss when we do that are the fine details. And that's why I think this, this systematic going through a book verse by verse is so important for us because it makes us focus on details. So often it is death, resurrection, commission, ascension, wahoo. But this forces us to stop and acknowledge and see the fear that was very, very real. It's easy for us to make the Bible a bit of a highlight reel. To pick out the best bits, the nice bits, the good bits and use that and look at that. But this has been a horrible few days from the disciples' point of view. So here they are, behind locked doors. We lock things, don't we? We lock our houses, we lock our cars, we lock our sheds. If you've got a safe, you lock it. We lock things that we want to protect. Our friends and disciples wanted to protect their life, so they locked the door. So it begs the question, what is the answer to their fear? Second half of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. John likes his details. We've seen this, haven't we? John gives us specific details for reasons, and the detail that he gives us is the locked door. There is a very real purpose to him telling us that the door is locked, because he's stressing the miraculous nature of the fact that this body that has just passed through grave clothes is now passing through doors. Fully man. This isn't, Jesus isn't some kind of ghost come from the dead. This is man Jesus miraculously passing through this door and appearing. And his words, and again, remember this, Jesus knows how much these guys are doubting him, how much they've not stood with him, Peter's denial, everything else. And Jesus is quite entitled to give them a rollicking here. Jesus is totally entitled to say, you guys are rubbish. What sort of followers are you? I've told you. I've told you who I am, what I'm going to do, and, and you still just don't get it. But Jesus' words to his friends are, peace be with you. 
shalom, peace. This is the greeting. It's the greeting still used today in Arabic. Assalamu alaikum. It is the greeting of peace. Peace be with you. So Jesus doesn't come with some groundbreaking words for his disciples, but he comes with the greeting of peace be with you. But he repeats them, verse 19, verse 21, verse 26. Shalom, 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 peace. So we've come from this fear to this proclamation of peace very quickly. John 14, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. And then slightly later in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you know, I think this declaration of peace goes hand in hand with what Jesus did at the cross when he declared, it is finished. What is finished? His mission is finished. To bring eternal reconciliation through his blood between man and God. What is the consequence of that? What is the consequence of what Jesus did at Calvary? Well, the consequence is peace. Peace between man and and God. You see, before the cross, Jesus is constantly proclaiming what's coming. He's constantly proclaiming what he's going to do. The coming peace, fear not, as we've just read, fear not, peace is coming. Pre-cross, peace is coming. Post-cross, here's my peace. Post-resurrection, shalom. Peace has been achieved. <coughs> John, in every epistle from Romans to Jude, within the introduction, you will find the words grace and peace in the greetings, in all of them. Why? Because grace and peace go hand in hand. This is now shalom peace, real peace. I still remember when Derek Malcolm preached ages ago, and he spoke so well of uh, peace not being the absence of conflict, but true peace being this shalom peace, this unity with God. But this idea, and this is what we have in, in grace and peace, that through the grace of the cross, peace has been achieved. Because of the grace extended to us, we have peace with God. <clears throat> These guys were in great need. They were in great need of peace. And you know, in every human heart, there is a desire for peace. What is the essence of peace? I think it's security. I think it's security that there is something bigger than us, more than us, that we can rely on, that we can put our trust in, and that there we will find peace. Do you know, there are many things in life that rob us of peace circumstances beyond our control. And I'm sure as I say that, there are things that will come into your mind that have or that are robbing you of peace. In a small way, we've not had much peace this week. You'll notice I'm here again for the second Sunday in a row on my own because Benji's not been very well for the last eight days. It's nothing serious, he's okay. Um, but he's had tonsillitis and the sickness bug and a chest infection and the poor boy's been hammered. And it's hard. It's really hard watching your kid sick all the time and feeling really unwell and you just wish you could take it from them and there's not been a lot of peace, especially in the middle of the night for a week. 
But in a bigger sense, horrible things that are unknowable to us and the awful things that are knowable to us, they breed insecurity. They breed anxiety. They breed in us fear. Do you know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? Do not fear. The most repeated command in the whole of the Bible is do not fear. It's not love one another. It's not serve one another. It's not obey. It's not about you and what you do, but simply do not fear. How stunning is that? How liberating is that? That the the, the chief command of the scriptures is do not fear. You see, the resurrection means a lot of things, but it primarily means peace. I'm going to go, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to take you with me to where I am. You will have peace, eternal peace, eternal reconciliation with me. You see, as we move into verse 20, the doors might be locked. But Jesus is proving here that this is the appearance of the crucified king. He shows his hands and his sides. Luke adds his feet as well. The parts of the body where his wounds, his scars could be seen. Others who have been crucified, if somehow they had been raised, could have shown their feet, could have shown their hands, but they couldn't have shown their side. So the disciples are forced to grasp what is the central confession of the church, that the risen Lord is none other than the crucified Christ. And you'll find confession after confession all throughout the ages will contain some kind of statement about the resurrected Lord. The Baptist confession, the risen Lord is not a, on the third day he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. So we have this fear, we have Jesus come with this declaration of peace. And I think the ESV translation lets it down itself down a little bit when it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I'm not sure that quite does it justice. When I hear the word glad, I kind of think somebody's shaking their head saying that's pretty decent. But I think it's so much more. The NIV says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Or the New Living Translation said they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Why? Because he had come to turn their grief to joy. Those famous words of John 16, very truly I tell you, You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The world and the things that are evil of this world will rejoice when I am dead. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. You will forget that fear. You will forget what has gone before because the joy will be so great. So with you, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now that's Resurrection Sunday. That is the joy of the Lord Jesus that is now theirs. And it's not a joy, of course, that stays in season or in day, but it is is a, a joy that is known. It is a joy that can proclaim whatever life throws at us. He is alive. The King is alive. And we cannot exaggerate the the magnitude of what this means. There is hope. And if you find yourself in that place robbed of peace, 
Immerse yourself in the truth that Jesus is alive today. That death has been defeated. So we have fear turned to peace. And then Jesus sends them. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, you are forgiven them. If you behold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Each of the Gospels contain a commission for us. Matthew 28 is, of course, the most famous of those. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. There's lots, that there's commissions in each of the Gospels. And this is, that happens much later in Galilee. But this is the here and now. And it builds on the words of John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus talking to the Father. Jesus is sent by the Father, and so he is sending us into the world as he was sent by the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father Jesus told his followers just a few days before. The disciples are going to do amazing things in resurrection power because the, 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 the penalty is now paid for sin. And in light of the resurrection, they have their commission. This is a mission that is both to the disciples then and to us today. It is Jesus' commission to his followers. I'm sending you. I am sending you into the world as my ambassadors, my messengers, to take the central news that I am alive and that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What's he doing here? The Spirit doesn't come till Pentecost, Acts 2. Why on earth is this here? I think R.C. Sproul writes really well on this, but he talks of this being Jesus' object lesson on the Spirit. This is Jesus illustrating the point of what is going to come. The Spirit is like the breath of Christ. Jesus is, is following in the pattern of many of the Old Testament prophets. You take somebody like Isaiah that would use, uh, like Jeremiah, that would take all sorts of things and, 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 and physical things to help explain stories. He would use um, a branch from an almond tree, a worn linen belt, potter's clay. He'd use all sorts to help the people understand what it was he wanted to say. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. So this is where we find ourselves here. Jesus has done what he said he was going to do. He is who he says he is. And now peace be with you. And this is your mission. You remember Jesus shrugged off Mary when she clung to him. He wasn't being rude, but he had a job for her and there was a level of urgency to it. Her job was to go and tell. Her job was to go and find the disciples and go and tell them. And if Christianity and the good news of Jesus is to spread in Scotland, it's because we're going to open our mouths and we're going to talk about Jesus because we're going to proclaim the truth that your sins can be forgiven. He has the power over death. And he can forgive your sins. Go and tell people. That's our mission. You find yourself asking, what is my purpose in life? This is it. Money, work, family, 
It's all great, it's all important, but it's not your mission, it's not your purpose. Your mission is to tell people that there's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That sounds scary, doesn't it? It sounds scary, but it's of the utmost importance, and it's so important that Jesus includes it right here. Just as he's appeared, this is what he says to his friends. So that's Jesus. That's Jesus in the ten. And we're left with one other. We'll look at very, very briefly. We come to our friend Thomas, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and I place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There's a fascinating story about Thomas Jefferson. You might know this, but Thomas Jefferson was a skeptic in his later life of faith. He believed that there was a creator, God, but he didn't believe in much more than that. So what he did is he took a razor and he went through the Gospels and he cut out all the bits that were miraculous. And he cut out all the bits about the resurrection, anything that was possibly supernatural. And what was left, he bound it together. And it's a book, you can buy it today, uh, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth by Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson decided to take all the good bits, decided to take all the supernatural things about Jesus and go, this guy's a good teacher, here's this book. But Jefferson missed something. Of course, to say that Jesus is just that moral teacher is totally inaccurate. If he didn't come to do what he said he was going to do, he has no moral teacher. He's a fraud and he's a liar and he's the biggest that there is. He cannot just be a good guy. He cannot just sit there with Buddha and Plato and Gandhi and whoever else you want to put him on a shelf with. He can't sit there. Because if Jesus didn't do what he said he would do, he's a fraud. Jesus' claim was that I was, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back. And if he didn't do it, there are some serious problems. Thomas Jefferson was a doubter, but he wasn't the most famous Thomas who doubted. We all deal with our emotions differently. And I think Thomas was so overcome with the grief at the loss of Jesus, he just wanted to go and be by himself. Maybe you're like that. Maybe when you're processing and dealing with something, you can't be bothered with people. But I think that's what Thomas has done here. Um, and, and I think it's really important to say Thomas isn't a coward. And I think it's a real shame that the guy gets called a doubter. Because remember, when Jesus wanted to go and see Lazarus um, way back in John 11, it was his disciples that said to him, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. And it was Thomas who replied, let us also go, that we may die with him. This isn't some cowardly man. But I think he'd found the pressure the last few days too much to deal with. And his way of dealing with that was going and being alone. So when the other disciples had said, we have seen the Lord, the testimony had come to him. How did Thomas respond? Unless I see the hands, uh, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So that's his unbelief. And we're going to finish with the remedy for unbelief. From verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There it is again. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. And put, your hand, uh, put out your hand and place it in my side. You see this? Thomas, here's my hand. 
here's my hand, take it. Here's my side, take it. Have a look, put your finger in there. You notice Thomas hadn't told him what he wants. Jesus knows exactly what he needs. Jesus is providing for Thomas exactly what he needs so that he might believe. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. But Thomas doesn't believe his friends. He doesn't believe the eyewitness accounts. Continuing that passage, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There are many who do not, will not, have not believed the eyewitness accounts. There are many who pass this book off as fiction. But I'm overcome with how brutally honest the scriptures are. I'm overcome by how honest the scriptures are in light of the resurrection. And you cannot help but feel that if this was a work of fiction, they didn't do a very good job of convincing people that it's real. You would have had guys go to the tomb and instantly, he is here. There would have been so much more grandeur in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And on top of that, the Apostle Paul tells us that 500, Jesus showed himself to 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15, it's a great read that he has gone and shown himself. And Paul also says, these people, a lot of them are still alive. Paul's saying, go and speak to them. There is a number of people, a lot of people that have seen Jesus. Go and speak to them. Go and do your research, if you don't believe. Go and ask them what they saw. And they tell you. Why on earth would Paul take such a risk as to put out a statement like that? It's not difficult to discredit. You can't, I can't say that you've all seen something, stick it in the Hamilton Advertiser without some of you going, what on earth has he just said? It would be discredited very, very quickly. You don't just throw that sort of claim out there. 500 people have seen a resurrected Lord Jesus without there being some substance to it. In eight days, there'll be no conversation between Thomas and Jesus. And Jesus says, put your hands here. Funnily enough, we don't actually, we're not told that Thomas actually does it. I actually think that it's Jesus knowing that that's what he needs is enough for him to confess, my Lord and my God. Thomas realizes that Jesus knows exactly what he needs before he even asks. He's shocked that Jesus would appear and that Jesus would say exactly what he needed. My Lord and my God, what a statement for a Jewish man to make this monotheistic, this one God religion, my Lord and my God. What a confession that is. You see, Jesus foresees a time when there will be no more time of physical proof on earth. We don't have the luxury of the evidence, the tangible physical evidence of the Lord Jesus that the disciples did. Soon he would descend to the Father his, heavenly ministry, his earthly ministry all brought to an end, the evidence of his earthly body to disappear. And all who have believed since the ascension believe without seeing the resurrected Jesus. This is true for us today as it was for those saved right as he ascended. But this doesn't mean that our faith is any less. I think Peter outlines it beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of souls. You see, we come to faith through the witnesses, through the eyewitnesses of the earliest of believers, through the proclamation of the apostles. Blessed then are those who do not get the experience of Thomas, but rather read or hear proclaimed, listen, see the inspired word and come to share the faith that Thomas had. So what does it mean? What does the resurrection mean for us? Peace. I hope it means peace for you. That there is peace now and that there is peace for all eternity. Whatever your reality, whatever you face this week, whatever's going on at home, at work, with family, whatever it might be, whether it be your health or your finances or anything else in there, would you have peace? But Jesus also gives his followers purpose. Go and tell. Go and tell that there is forgiveness of sins. Now let me speak for a moment to those of you who are skeptical. I'm going to ask one small thing from you. Would you be like Thomas? Would you ask Jesus for what you need to believe? And then with an open mind and an open heart, would you consider what you're given? Do you know, I'm convinced that people don't reject Jesus or the Gospels because of a lack of evidence. That was daft. Um, but they reject Jesus because he's a threat to our autonomy. He's a threat to the way I like to do things. He's a threat to me and my way of life. You want a simple definition of sin? You simply say me first. My way, nobody else's. And to deny the resurrection is to deny all the good things that God wants for you. And more than that, it is to deny the great love of God. The love that he has for you. Christ showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took then, didn't he, the ultimate wound of my sin and your sin so that we don't have to. And so that we would have eternal life. And that through the wounds that we experience in this life, when we are robbed of peace, when we know no peace, we know that in those times there is growth. We know that in those most challenging times, in the middle of that refiner's fire, that is where faith grows in us. So friends, be encouraged. He is near. He is alive. You have peace. You have a mission. You have purpose. Would you know that peace this week? Would you know that peace beyond all else? And would we take seriously the call? The call to take the good news that there is forgiveness of sins to the world. Let's pray. Father, this text is just once again so rich for us. Father, I pray that not one person would leave here today without understanding what the resurrection means for them personally we ask Lord that in the good and the bad and everything in between of this week would we know that peace of Christ would we know your peace beyond circumstance would we know that you are near 
that you did not abandon us as you ascended to heaven, but you left your spirit with us. Your spirit that is living, working today amongst us here in Hamilton. Hamilton. 